שלום לכם. תתן סטורי ברבי יעקב מאיר. רבי יעקב מאיר was the chief rabbi of Israel, the Rishon Etzion. He was the one right before Chacham Ben Zion Merachai Uziel. And Rabbi Yaakov Meir, before he came back to Eretz Yisrael to become the chief rabbi, he was the chief rabbi in Saloniki. And in Saloniki, he wrote a commentary on Shulchan Aruch Evan Hezer and Choshem Mishpat, a com- an ex- exhaustive commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. And before he had a chance to publish it, his entire library went up in flames in a fire that burst out in his home, and he lost his handwritten manuscripts. And we today don't have the writings of Rabbi Yaakov Meir. The pain that Rabbi Yaakov Meir felt when he lost his manuscripts is something that is, you read his words and it breaks your heart. And he said every time he would come to write, it was like he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't do it again. Another time, the same thing that he gave his heart and soul into. I was okay last night to experience a little bit of suffering of what it feels to lose your Torah. We were sitting here in the room, beginning our first year of the Mishneh Torah, here at the Shiviti Night Kolel. And we have a beautiful, high-quality video from last night. But unfortunately, the audio disappeared. And uh, my dear friend Yitzchak told me, we have to do a take two. And the whole day I've been in, in tremendous turmoil. How do I give a shiur? Yesterday's shiur was my heart, it was my soul. And I spoke to the Rabbanit, the Rabbanit says, you have to do it again. Not again. Do a new shiur, based on yesterday's shiur. So for those of you who were with me in person in San Diego, you were zachitem, you heard yesterday things that came from my heart. And those of you who are watching this online, so you'll merit, Bezat Hashem, that we'll learn together. And I'm asking, Adonai, Sevadai Tiftach, Hashem, open up my lips, Ufi Agit Yiladecha, and let my mouth sing your praises, let my mouth say the things that it's supposed to say, Bezat Hashem. We're building a new series here, at the night column. And this new series is in the Rambam's Mishneh Torah, the first book, using the edition of Rabbi Yosef Kapach, or Kafich, if you want to pronounce his name properly. I'm using the name Kapach, and we'll be using that name throughout uh, the Kolob, because essentially that's how he's referred to in the modern Israeli street. Correct or incorrect, simply it's a frame of reference. Rabbi Yosef Kapach left behind tremendous works of the Rishonim, of the, uh, of the writings of Teman, the writings of uh, Rishonim that were not Yemenite, especially his Mifal of the Rambam, what he did for the Rambam. They call him the Goel, the Redeemer of the Rambam. And we'll talk about that today. That's what I'm here to do. When we started in the night column, we began learning Shulchan Aruch. And though I believe that every Jew should know Shulchan Aruch well, Halakha, on its own, can sometimes lead a person to the illusion that as long as I tick the right boxes and I keep Shabbat and I eat kasher and I do this and I do that, that becoming a good person, being a human being, it's not important, because I'm doing all the right things of being a Jew. Peretz always told us that before you are a Jew, you are a human being. And you must perfect yourself as a human being in order to even begin building that palace that is being a Jew. And that's why from the day that we started the Kolel, before we study Shulchan Aruch every night, we make sure that we study beforehand a book, a book of our Chachamim that will teach us, that will instill in us the proper values and character traits that are necessary to be a good person. We began with the writings of Rabbi Avraham ben HaRambam, the son of Maimonides of the Rambam. In his book, Hamaspik of the Hashem, translated from fragments of a manuscript that we have left over from Arabic into Hebrew. And Baruch Hashem, for a number of years, we sat together and studied the guide to serving God. 
Hamaspik loved Hashem. And we reached a place in Rabbeinu Avraham's writings. Rabbeinu Avraham was a chassid, was a righteous man. And we reached a place where, maybe not everyone who listens to the shiurim, but to the one who's teaching the shiur, I reached the limits of the chassidut, of what can I teach that I can practice instead of teaching something that is already beyond me. I'm not used to teaching things that I, I myself am still working on. And therefore... For the last year or so, we've uh, stopped studying the writings of Rabbeinu Avraham and Rambam, and we've been looking for a book. What can replace Rabbeinu Avraham and Rambam? Who can replace Rabbeinu Avraham and Rambam? And that's always a problem. Whenever one leader phases out, and we look, who's the next leader? To replace a great leader is very hard. To look for who can fill in the shoes of Rabbeinu Avraham and Rambam. And I tried thinking about this idea, and that idea, and the next idea, but none of them sat well with me. Until one night, I was thinking to myself, Rabbeinu Avraham and Rambam, who can replace Rabbeinu Avraham and Rambam? The only one who can replace Rabbeinu Avraham is the one who gave him who he was. His father. The Neshar Agadon, the great eagle. Rabbeinu Harambam, our Rabbi the Rambam. And at first I thought maybe we should study the Moreh Nebuchim. Maybe we should study the Guide of the Perplexed. It's the Rambam's magnum opus in Jewish philosophy and building of theology, of proper thought process. I was thinking to myself that the guide of the perplexed has a challenge. And the challenge is that for those people who are perplexed, the Rambam came like water for a thirsty soul to quench that thirst. But for those people who are not so perplexed, or who weren't perplexed until they read the guide of the perplexed, perhaps we'll be learning things that otherwise uh, were not necessary for us to study, for our neshamot to delve into. I don't want to make anyone more confused than they really were before they started. I said, maybe we could go a path that many people have walked upon. This is the path of the Mishneh Torah of the Rambam, the Rambam's code of Jewish law, the Yad the books of the Rambam that he gave to us, codifying Jewish law. The beautiful thing about the Rambam is, unlike many other people, the Rambam is a package. There's a package. If I can borrow a term, there's no secret he didn't know. There's nothing the Rambam didn't have expertise in. The Rambam gave us Halakha, he gave us Tanakh, he gave us Musar, he gave us a proper outlook on the world, he gave us Derech Eretz, he gave us Midot, he gave us everything. In one, in one personality you find it all. And if I figured the Mishneh Torah, the writings of Rabbein Ravam, the writings of the Rambam, is the right place for us to start. And we're going to be studying, and this is perhaps my first introduction, the study of Mishneh Torah that we do together so far in the Shiviti Night Kolo, are not going to be the laws of Titit, or the laws of Mezuzah, or the laws of Shabbat, or the laws of Yom Tov, or the laws of uh, Nizikin, or any other area of Halakha. Rather, we're going to be studying the Rambam's initial book of Halakhot, but exploring them as a book, as a springboard to conversations about proper development of personality, of character traits, of building ourselves up as human beings and as Yehudim, those who are students of the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu. And we'll be using the Rambam's book, and I'm reserving the right to creative license to use the Rambam's text to bring us the conversations that we as a kolal need to have before we delve into the legal parts of the Shulchan Aruch, which we do in the second half of the kolal. The second thing I must say before we begin is that I don't propose, I don't purport, that's the English word, I don't purport to be a Talmid of Ubi Yosef Kapach. 
I didn't meet Rabbi Yosef Kapach, I did not merit. I'm not a student of Rabbi Yosef Kapach. I'm not a student of the students of Rabbi Yosef Kapach. There are those who were students of his, who sat by him, who heard from him, who learned from him, who are much greater people to teach the Mishnah of Rabbi Yosef Kapach, and I'm not one of them. But when I think to myself, if I'm going to study Rambam, who can I study Rambam from? Who can give us a Rambam that is a, is a Kav Naki, that is a pure, pure Rambam? And that's Rabbi Yosef Kapach. Rabbi Yosef Kapach, I have a letter here that's signed on it by Chacham uh, Ovadiyah Yosef, Chacham Ornechadiyahu, when they say that Rav Kapach is essentially the Rambam himself. Chacham Ornechadiyahu once said about Rav Kapach, if you wish to know what the Rambam would do, go look at Rav Kapach. What Rav Kapach does, that's what the Rambam did. Mamash, is, it's, a, it's the Rambam in this world. And not only what Rav Kapach acted like the Rambam, but the pure text that he gave us. So we'll discuss that later. The clarity, the commentary that he gave us on Ramam is paralleled by no other. And therefore it was fitting for us to learn the Mishneh Torah to the teachings of Rav Kapach. But I don't purport at any point in time to be a Talmud of Rav Kapach or to have the only authentic reading of Rav Yosef Kapach. But rather I'm grateful to him, to his Bera Midrash and to his Talmudim for gifting us, the rest of the Jewish people, with manuscripts and with volumes of writings that nobody else gave to the Jewish people. In order to understand a little bit of what happened. We spoke about 1917, about the books, the library of Yaakov Meir burning down. I want to take you a few years before that to a city in Yemen called Sana. The city of Sana is a capital city in Yemen. Yemen doesn't work the way you may think another country works. Yemen is a country that is made up of many small tribes that oftentimes are warring with each other and there's some kind of peace and there's territories and treaties and, and it's a different kind of place. But the city of Sana was a place where the Chachamim sat, where the Bedin was, where the Yeshivot were, where the Batei Midrash were, the Batei Knesset, things, the Jewish community that led Yemen was sitting in Sana. I want to take you to the years of 1913 and 1914, the years of the great Machloket, the war in Sana. There were two camps, and if I could use their nicknames and their real names, one is known as the Mechadshim, the innovators, the new ones. Otherwise known as the Dagdaim or the Dogdea. A proper term, Dagdaim was a derogatory term used for them. Dogdea, the generation of knowledge. Essentially, these were Yemenite Jews that were led by Rabbi Yechia Kapach, the grandfather, Mori Hayashish, the old Rav Kapach, the grandfather of the Rav Kapach whose books we're studying. And he led a revolution in Yemen, which we're going to speak about in just a moment. Opposing him were a group called the Ikshim, in a derogatory way also, the stubborn ones, really the Mishamrim, those who held on to the tradition, and these two camps went to war with each other. What happens here is very important, and it's important to know that the Dardeim, the Dordea, the, the Mechadshim as they're called, the camp of Kapach, from my reading and my understanding in the last uh, few weeks that I've been researching the war from letters written between the parties and each one describing the other side and the things they wrote about each other, one of the greatest Chilu Hashem, perhaps, that happened in Yemenite Jewish history, but also very important and very telling, and sheds a lot of light on what is happening later in history in terms of Al-Kapach and his writings. It seems that the Dardeim, the Mechachim, had in their heyday, in their prime, they had about 200 followers, big followers, big famous last names of Chachamim in Yemen. And on the other hand, they were still a small group, and they existed primarily only inside of 
the city of Sana, and though there may have been small influences in other places, they really lived and existed only in this place. Let me tell you how this works. Where did it all begin? In Europe, you had a movement of Haskala, the Maskilim, the Enlightenment, as they call themselves. These were Jews that were pushing Judaism to a place of less observance of Halakha and moving away from Judaism as it was traditionally observed in Ashkenaz. When Britain occupied the land of Yemen, it opened up doors that otherwise the place of Yemen was a faraway country that was very hard to travel to and get through even and navigate. When the British came, the doors opened up to European travelers. And there were two famous European travelers that came, one by the last name of Halevi, Yosef Halevi, and one by the last name of Glazer or Glazer, or even in the Yemenite Arabic, they gave themselves another name because the name Glazer didn't mean anything to the Jews of Yemen. They, they gave their own version of that last name. These two Maskilim came and recorded different things, you know, like the exotic Jews of Yemen. It was something exciting. Look at these desert Jews living here in Yemen. And they recorded, they were on a hunt to see what this culture was about. You know, my father, growing up in Israel, he had long peot as a child, him and his brother, Zion. They were once sitting somewhere, and an American tourist stopped by, and, hey, please pose, and he took, snapped a picture of them. He finally got a real-life image of these exotic Yemenite Jews. Uh, you know, there's regular Jews, and there's exotic Jews. There's uh, real Jews, and then the ones that, wow, look, there's still Jews in these faraway places like Yemen. I say that with all the sarcasm in the world. And there were these travelers who came through. Rabihe Kapach was the host, and I don't remember if this story happened with Halevi or with Glazer, but if you look in the writings of Rabbi Yosef Kapach, in the second volume of his writings, his collected writings, it comes in three volumes. In the second volume, there's an essay there from Rav Chaim Chabshush, uh, how you pronounce his name, again, Israeli versus Yemenite dialect. And in there, in one of the footnotes, Rav Kapach himself relates about his grandfather the following story. One of these maskilim came to, from Europe to Yemen. And it seems like the Yemenite rabbis who hosted them didn't exactly know what they were all about. Didn't really understand their worldview or where they're coming from. They saw them as Jews. Jews that came from another place. And where they were there, they behaved properly according to Halakha. And they wanted to take him around to show him the beauty of the Yemenite Jewish community. So in the middle of the night, he woke up this uh, European traveler. He said, get up, we have to go see what's happening in Yemen. It's the middle of the night. What happens in Yemen? And my grandfather, Allah Shalom, and his uh, Yemenite Betachneset, they used to pray at 5.30 every day. Then later in life, uh, Shabbat became 6.30 already. And I remember when they changed the Minyan time to start on Shabbat morning at 7.30. 7.30, he was livid. He would still get there at 6.30. He said, what kind of people can stay in bed all the way till 7.30 to pray Shachrit? And he would start praying at 6.30 when everyone else joined, joined. He would always say this young generation, young generation, who changed the Minyan time to be so late to 7.30. I once called him to tell him that I was in Muncie in New York and I went to go pray Mincha in one of these minion factories. I won't tell you the name of where it was, but I went to go pray and I walked into a room hoping to find a minyan for Mincha. Instead I come in and there's a group of people with talitot, with tefillin and they're starting Baruch Shama. It's 3.30 in the afternoon. I couldn't believe it. So I called my grandfather and said, you know, Saba, I was in this Beth Knesset and they had all these minyanim, different rooms, different people praying. You won't even believe it. 3.30 in the afternoon, I came into the room, there's people praying shacharit. There was a silent pause. My grandfather said, Yonatan, are you sure they're Jewish? What kind of Jews pray shacharit at 3.30 in the afternoon? It's the middle of the night. Rabbi Yechia Kapach wakes up his guest and says, come, come with me. And he takes him with a few other chachamim to different synagogues in the city, to this synagogue, to that synagogue, to the next synagogue. And one of the Beit Knesset they reach, 
this uh, traveler came inside. He said, what are they reading here? What are they doing, everyone? It's the middle of the night. They're all sitting on the floor, reading, praying, studying. What are they doing? He said, oh, for years, for generations, they sit here on the floor and they're reading the book of the Zohar. He said, the Zohar? The, the, you guys read Zohar in Yemen? He said, yeah, of course. And Rabbi Yosef Kabach writes, he said the following words, Baruch Dayan Hamid. Blessed is the true judge. This evil Zohar made it all the way to Yemen. And when Rabbi Chikapach was surprised because he thought he was showing off how wonderful Yemen is and now it seems like something wrong happened. This Maskil, when he went back to Europe, sent a number of books to Rabbi Chikapach. Some of them written by Chachamim, like uh, Rabbi Leon uh, Mudina, uh, who has also a commentary in En Yaakov and the Gadot of Chazal, uh, sent them another, some other works from the more academic side showing or uh, questioning the authenticity of the Zohar whether the Zohar is written by Rishon Baruchai whether Kabbalah at all is even real whether it's a foreign uh, understanding Rabbi Yechei Kapach very quickly became convinced the Zohar is not a book written by Rishon Baruchai so much so that he himself even believed that this book could have been written by a Christian man himself and at that point in time Rabbi Chekapach gets up and starts a group of Jews called the Dagdei, the Do Dea, the generation of knowledge. And this is the beginning of a war that will take a terrible effect on the Yemenite Jewish population. They begin to pray. By the way, there's a letter that I have from Rabbi Said Ben Chaim, who was one of the opponents. Terrible things he writes about Rabbi Chekapach. But he writes there something that upset him. He said, you know, this group of Jews, they wake up at one o'clock in the morning, Till sunrise. Why till 1 o'clock till sunrise? Because at sunrise you pray shacharit. Then you have to go work for your family, to feed your family, to go uh, take care of everyone. And then you come home for arvit. You go to sleep when it gets dark. And then you wake up again, 1 o'clock in the morning. And they study from 1 o'clock in the morning till prayers in the morning. He says, you know what upsets me about these people? He says, they are so smart that in 30 minutes of studying Talmud, they can grasp them. It takes other people a few days. And other yeshivot, it takes them a few days. They are too smart for their own good. That was his problem. These people are too smart. Well, they're too smart, they think they're right, and they're stubborn. Rabbi Kapach and his Talmidim and his Chavarim, his friends and his students, begin a movement which slowly begins to take away, or maybe not so slowly, anything that has to do with Zohar and Kabbalah from the Yemenite Jewish tradition. So, removes the Zohar, obviously, takes out any Kabbalistic references or prayers from inside of the Sidu, and has their own place to pray, their own place to study, and ultimately mocks or starts up with the traditional Jewish community in Yemen who was since the influence of the Sfaradim and their Kabbalah and their Shukhan Aruch into Yemen uh, really the Yemenites had become very much like that. The Yemenites accepted the Shukhan Aruch for the most part. The Yemenites accepted the Sephardic Sidur for the most part. Yes, some more, some less. But ultimately Rav Kapach began a revolution. This revolution didn't end well. Because the Jews, when they're not able to settle things for themselves, end up going to the local non-Jewish government. As you know, I'll tell you before that. There's a... Whenever you have machloket, you have problems, there's always things that, that happen that no one intended for them to happen, but they do happen. They go to the government and decide that somebody has to make a decision between Rav Kapach and his camp and the rest of the Jewish community in Yemen, between the Mechachim and the Meshamrim, those who preserve the tradition and those who are innovating in the tradition. There's a book that Rav Kapach writes. This book is called Sefer Milchamot Hashem, The Wars of Hashem. 
And then there he has 140 or 150 step by step by step by step critiques on the book of the Zohar. Some of them, such as, uh, if I recall correctly, how could it be that the Zohar is written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai when in there there are rabbis that are quoted that lived after Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died? How could it be that there are things written in the Zohar that are incorrect, sukim that are not actually there or that are referenced incorrectly? How could it be that a book written in the time of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai does not employ the Aramaic of that time period and rather uses a different kind of Aramaic and so on and so forth? Until a few minutes before my shul yesterday, I couldn't find the copy of the book Emunat Hashem, written by a certain Rabbi Arusi, not the Rabbi Arusi alive in Israel today, which is called Sefer Emunat Hashem. This book is some 539 pages, in which step by step, the rabbis of Yemen who are protecting Kabbalah from Rabbi Kapach answer back each one of those questions. At least uh, they, they attempted to answer each one of those questions, just like Rabbi Kapach attempted to attack the Zohar in every one of those steps. And without sticking my head inside of it, they decided to go to the local non-Jewish Muslim judge. A judge, a governor, a ruler, like I told you, it's a tribal country. And things work a little bit differently than the countries that you're familiar with, with proper forms of government. It's important to know that this Muslim judge was actually considered a rationalist Muslim, meaning he belonged to a rationalist camp within Yemenite uh, Islamic uh, theology. And technically, he was more aligned with Rav Kapach's approach to Judaism than with the other camp's approach to Judaism. The problem was that he was not a stupid man. And he realized very quickly that if Jews were allowed to have a revolution in their Judaism, in their theology, in their religion, that very quickly their Muslim neighbors would become jealous. And what would they want? They also want a revolution. And what was the judge worried about? That if the Muslims would begin to have a revolution, he would be the first one to lose his authority and his power. And because of this, after hearing both arguments, he sided with the opponents of Rubi Kapach and puts him in prison. How that story ends is not so relevant. What's relevant to us is that Rubi Kapach ultimately is the greatest teacher of our Rabbi Yosef Kapach. From a very young age, he already tells his students, this is going to be the one who's going to lead you. I believe he was six years old at that point in time. Rabbi Yosef Kapach was six. Was, this is the one who will lead you after me. And if you're in your books of the Rambam, the Mishneh Torah, on page Yud Gimel, I want to read to you a little bit. There's a photocopy here, page 13, of a letter in the handwriting of Rabbi Yechiel Kapach, and then an addition from his son, Rabbi David Kapach, who's the father of Rabbi Yosef, in which it shows how he paid people to go to the Batei Knesset, to the old synagogues, to go buy old manuscripts from the Genizah, from the burials, from, where, from, uh, from the attics, from wherever they can find old papers that people had discarded. You know, the way the world works is people, they like sparkly, shiny, glittery things. If it's new, it's a brand new, beautiful book with nice laser print. People prefer that over an older work. People always take out the old. They take out the old and they bring in the new. And the problem is that the new is not always as good as the old. The old was correct, the new has mistakes, and these old books were buried, these old books were put away, and the new, the new replaced them. Rabbi Kapach sent his students to go to different places, to different synagogues, to different Batei Knesset, where they had old manuscripts, to buy them. Even he said, quarter pages, the corners of pages, whatever it could be, we're going to restore these books back to their previous splendor. 
And Rabbi Yosef Kapach says that when he was growing up in his grandfather's Beit Amidash, he remembers sitting there with the old men and everybody with a manuscript of the Ramam, handwritten manuscript standing in front of them. There's a scene that I remember, whether I read it from Yosef Kapach or from one of his grandchildren. You know, in Yemen they would bury, you know, Gniza, what do you do with the things that are, are old, the old books? And they would collect them in the synagogue. And after a while, they would put them in a big clay pot and then close the lid of the pot and bury it in the ground. So the next funeral that happened, they would bury it in the ground. And when it would rain in Yemen, so the water would come and uncover the dirt and then these pots would come out of the ground and there'd be papers strewn everywhere and half books and all kinds of manuscripts thrown all over the place. And Rabbi Yosef says he remembers running through the cemetery. Obviously, his grandfather was a little too old to actually dig and pick things up. He remembers going and picking up papers and books and bindings and different things, different pieces, and coming back home with his grandfather and piecing them together. And because of this, the Kapach family became owners, collectors of a tremendous amount of handwritten literature from the Rishonim, both Yemenite and non-Yemenite. Don't forget, the Ramam is not Yemenite. But the copiers who were sent from Yemen to the Rambam, from Yemen to the Rambam, finally they had manuscripts in their hands. Things that other people didn't have. There's a book, Shailot V'Chuvot HaRidba, The Questions and Answers of the Rabbi Ridba. And that book was entirely out of print, out of existence. The only people who owned the copy of the Ridba's letters was Rav Kapach's family. Today, when you have a Shut HaRidba, that Shut HaRidba comes from the private collection of Rabbi Yosef Kapach. But maybe after understanding the background of the Kapach family, you can begin to understand why is it so important to the Kapachs to uncover ancient manuscripts because their whole purpose was to show that they're not the Michachim, they're not the new ones, that there was a Yemenite Jewish tradition before the Kabbalah came to Yemen. There was a Yemenite Jewish tradition that followed the Rambam before the Shulchan Aruch came to Yemen. And if they could just show it and if they could just prove it, perhaps they could win. And maybe they won, maybe they didn't, but Am Yisrael won because these collectors of beautiful Jewish manuscripts gave to us a library of books, of perfect, beautiful books that otherwise we would not have had. Rabbi Yosef Kapach, at a young age, becomes orphaned and needs to be married off, and they marry him off to his cousin, Bracha, later becomes Rabbanit Bracha, who also, by the way, wins the Israel Prize and other awards, uh, like her husband, they say that Rav Kapach got his prize because of her, and she got hers because of him. She was a tremendous person in the world of Chesed. Perhaps one day we'll dedicate a different shiul to his, to, to her legacy and to her teachings. They come to Israel, and Rabbi Yosef Kapach was famous and expert in the Yemenite art of silver smith, but not not regular silversmiths. A special kind, I don't have words in, in English to describe, of twisting silver wires and decorating kiddush cups and candlesticks. A, today they do these things with machines, but back then, Rabbi Yosef could do these with his fingers. Beautiful work. Tremendous amount of work. Things that, that other people paid money for. This is a art, art, the Yemenite Jewish community. This is how he sustained himself. And he came to Israel and found himself in a very hard situation, a poverty-struck situation. Now he recalls being so poor that when he would sleep in his little apartment that there would not enough room on the floor for him and his wife and the family. 
And he'd have to open up the front door and put his mattress down, and half of him was sleeping inside of the house, and half of him was sleeping outside of the house. Not exaggeration, for real, like that. He slept with the door open. He said, one night in the middle of the night, he left his gold watch that his grandfather, Rebichel Kapach, gave to him as a gift. He left it on his nightstand next to his head, and in the middle of the night when he was sleeping, someone came and stole his gold watch. After a few years of working in Tel Aviv, he felt that the learning, the suyot, the gemarot, the rambam, the halachot that he remembered were fading from him a little bit. And he wanted to reinvigorate his studies. And decided to set out to go look for a yeshiva. A yeshiva that he could come and remind himself and grow deeper inside of his limut Torah and his study of Torah. And they recommended him to go to the yeshiva, Makaz Rav Kuk. The Rav Kuk yeshiva, the central yeshiva in Jerusalem of Rav Kuk. You should know from the rabbis in Jerusalem that joined the ban of the Yemenite rabbis against Rav Kapach, the grandfather, Rav Kuk was the most prominent of those figures. He believed that those who believe like Rav Kapach cannot be counted in a minyan. They deny the existence of the oral Torah. They're heretics like any other heretic and he waged war against them. And when Rabbi Yosef Kapach, the grandson, came to Yeshivat Merkaz Rav Kuk because he wanted to study there, look, full circle, For the grandson of the Rabbi Kapach comes to study in the Yeshiva of he who opposed his grandfather. There was tremendous uproar. How could we let such a person to the yeshiva? This man with this last name, these beliefs, we're going to let him inside of our yeshiva. And they decided to put him on trial. They sent him to the office of Rabbi David, uh, of the Rav Nazir. Rav Nazir is the rabbi, Rabbi Shari Yashuv Kohen. He was a philosopher in Europe. He met Rav Kuka, a dramatic story. When he was a student, he met Rav Kuka and he jumped into the river and immersed himself and became a Sunzer Rav Kuk and moved to Israel, became a Nazir. His son was a chief rabbi of Haifa, a famous chief rabbi, passed away very recently. And he was considered the Kabbalist, the in-house residence Kabbalist of, uh, resident Kabbalist of Yeshivat Merkaz Rav Kuk. And he sat with him the whole night. And in the morning he came out to the Rosh Yeshiva and he wrote and said the following words. It would be an honor for this Yeshiva to have this man inside of the Yeshiva. This young man will become a Morei Horaot Bisrael, will become a leader of Halakha for the Jewish people. And ultimately, that is what happened. He goes to Yeshivat Makaz Rav Kuk, and Chacham Yosef Kapach ends up becoming a Dayan. Later in life, he's even appointed to the Bedin Hagadol, the Supreme Rabbinic Court in Jerusalem. He sits alongside personalities like Rabbi Yobari Yosef, Chacham Mordechai Diyaw, Rabbi Eliashiv, big, big, big Chachamim. By the way, some who are Kabbalists, some who are not, but Rabbi Yosef Kapach was recognized by all of these Chachamim as a giant. As a giant in Horah. A giant not just in the writings of the Rambam, but in the writings of all of our rabbis, the Puskim. An interesting anecdote. Rabbi Yosef Kapach struggled very much being in the Yeshiva at Merkaz Rav Kuk because even though he wanted to study and he needed something to live from, he very much believed, like the Rambam, the Rambam says about a person who takes money for studying Torah, terrible things the Rambam says about him. Ultimately, that it's a great desecration of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name, that it's an evil thing to do. Rizav Kapach was in a limbo. What do I do? I need money. I want to study. On the other hand, I'm not supposed to take money. And there's a journal in the estate of Rabbi Yosef Kapach. He records every shekel, every dollar, every penny that he received from the Shabbat Makaz Rav Kuk. And once he began working, he paid back ad sof puta ha Until the last penny that he received from the yeshiva, he paid back in full. Paid in full. Because he wanted to fulfill the words of his teacher, the Rambam, that says the one should not take money for the study of Torah. Some say that perhaps that's the reason 
for such a great personality, somebody who didn't enjoy the Torah, didn't get benefit from the Torah, didn't use the Torah, but studied the Torah with integrity, with commitment. I want to read to you on the next page of this photocopy a telling sentence from Yosef Kapach. On the top of page, you dalid. And I took a photocopy of this letter from my grandfather and my father and I printed it in the book. Why? Because Datan Vaviram, not such good people, have still not disappeared from the world. They still exist. There are still bad people in the world. They don't have a cloak of uh, humility over their face. They're brazen, ugly people in the world. With a brazen forehead on whom they say, It's a quote from the book of Yeshayahu, chapter 45. It says to a woman, Are you really pregnant? Is this really your son to a man? Meaning, is it really true? Is your story really true? Did they really buy those books? What he's referring to, I'm not exactly sure. But I know that these people will say that this letter never really existed. And that's the reason why I printed it here. Rabbi Yosef Kapach, from the moment he enters Eretz Israel, the wars of 1913 and 1914 chase him. There are those in the Yemenite Jewish community who persecute him and his writings and his family and his teachings. But in Israel, he met a whole new level of chutzpah, a whole new kind of azut metzach, a whole new kind of brazenness, which I wish to touch on for just a moment. I have a letter here, which I don't want to read all of. It doesn't deserve to be read even at all. But it's important to understand. There's an edition of the Rambam that began being printed in Rav Kapach's lifetime. You should know. Whenever books begin to be printed, so there are wars that break out. Not everybody is like the Ramah, who when he sees Maran Rabbi Yosef Kairo Shuchan be printed, he takes his book and buries it in the ground and says, why should I cause machloket on the Jewish people? I wish everybody should study the writings of Maran. I'm only going to add my notes. Not everybody is that great. You know, in Europe, there was a famous war between two printing presses. The Talmud that they have, the Talmud Bavli, the Vilna edition. There was another press, I don't want to mention names. There was another press that printed a Talmud and rabbis got involved and the non-Jews got involved. And ultimately, there was death that happened. Mamaj death, executions, public beatings that happened because of this war between printers. Don't think that when you see some printing houses print one book, oh no, our book is better. Don't think that everybody is Hashem Shabbat. Sometimes it all happens. It's money, it's pockets, it's whatever else it is. There are those who took offense to Rabbi Yosef Kapach claiming that his manuscripts were somehow superior, that his first-hand knowledge of Rambam's approach and Judaism was somehow better than theirs. And there's an editor, I don't want to mention his name, he's passed away from the world already. Maybe for those who know a little bit of history, there was a famous Hasidic rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Chaim Na'eh. Many people, our parents included, use his measurements for a kezayit, a kibitzah, when we measure units in halakha, many use his books. He initially was in the Chabad Jewish camp, if I'm not mistaken. And he writes a letter with his editor of the new Rambam, not Rav Kapach, the other Rambam. And he tells him, says, you know, you have a writing style that is very reminiscent of the haughtiness of the Lithuanians, of the Mitnagdim, and not of the humility of the Hasidim. Already then, he could pick up on something wrong with the character traits of this rabbi who wrote this letter. 
This rabbi was approached by a young man, Tamil Chacham, from the religious Zionist community, who was upset that this new super edition of the Rambam doesn't make any reference not to Rabbi Yosef Kapach, who essentially put out all the Rambam's writings. He's the Goel, the Redeemer of the Rambam. And not to Rav Kook, who for this rabbi was very important. He was uh, the first chief rabbi of Israel, Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, and who wrote tremendously about the Rambam. And if you're going to say that you don't quote contemporary rabbis, look in the book of uh, laws of kings, all the laws of government and the laws of returning to Israel, this editor quotes extensively from the writings of the Satmar Rebbe, a contemporary all about not going to Israel and about the evil Zionists and so on and so forth. It's all in there. And he had a question. He said, in my library, I don't want to put books that don't quote from Rav Kapach or don't quote Rav Kook. I want to read you a few telling sentences from this letter. I was asked to respond to what was written in this letter of why we didn't quote Rav Kook or Rav Kapach. This innocent, naive questioner. He lives in a group of Jews who believe that Rav Kapach is a genius and a righteous man and one of the leaders of Israel. By the way, he never writes Harav Yosef Kapach. He always writes Hey Reish Yud Kuf. And at first, wow, look, he's calling him Rabbi. He's not calling him Rabbi. This stands for, spells in Hebrew, the word the empty one, Rek. Harik. And every time I say Rabbi Yosef Kapach, he's writing the empty one. You know, his hatred was that bad. And he thinks that Rabbi Yosef Kapach's translation of the Arabic writings are better than the other translators. Okay, this is already a different argument. He's therefore very upset. He's very upset that we've denigrated Rabbi Yosef Kapach. And he thinks that somehow this is connected to rumors in Bnei Brak that the Kapachs don't accept the Zohar or because he uh, belongs to the religious Zionist camp, again a derogatory term. And he goes one by one, step by step, attacking Rabbi Yosef Kapach. One thing he writes here, and even though they've corrected Rabbi Yosef Kapach and some of his mistakes, he never fixed his mistakes in other volumes. Rav Kapach never corrected anything in his books, unless it was a printing error. Not in his translation of the Guide of the Perplexed, not in his commentary on the Rambam, what we're studying, not in his uh, translation of the commentary in the Mishnayot, is it possible that Rav Kapach never made a mistake in any one of these books? I don't expect him to apologize for his mistakes. I'm not asking him to be righteous like our great rabbis, the Chazonish, Rav Shach, the great Lithuanian rabbis of Bnei Brak. But he doesn't even act like a proper professor. You should know, those who are familiar with the ultra-Orthodox community of uh, Bnei Brak, 
calling someone a professor is like uh, if there's an evil person, it's the step below evil. It's uh, worse than that. Ha professor Blau, Madir Chuvot Rambam, the professor Blau who has an edition of Rambam's letters out, Hodal Rabbi Yosef Kapach, Todak Fulam Chupelet Antichovit, peace, Etikuna Vitikunehem Shlacherim, Velo Boshabaze. Look at Dr. Blau. Professor Blau managed to make mistakes and he thanks Rav Kapach for the corrections that he made to his book. Gamma Professor Lieberman. Who's Professor Lieberman? Rabbi Saul Lieberman. The famous Rabbi Saul Lieberman who printed Tosefta Kepshuta. He doesn't call him Rabbi, of course. Professor. Gamma Professor Lieberman it peace contrast tikunim v'ashlamot. Even Professor Lieberman wrote the mistakes that he made. And he writes at the end that he wishes to make sure that his books are clean. Because he was an honest researcher, a proper scientist. Only in the writings of this man's great rabbi, derogatory reference Rav Kapach, Hagon, this genius of his, Hatzadik, that righteous one of his, and Shum Solat, Rav Kapach never made any mistakes, and Shum Ta'ud, there's nothing wrong with his writings, that he never once took back something that he wrote. I'm even afraid to read these words. It says about this, you would call him a pathological, egotistical person and definitely not a righteous man or a genius. He adds all kinds of other terrible things here in the letters. He mentions here as a side sting wonder if Kapach critiques something that possibly could be connected to Kabbalah. That of course Rav Kapach must be attacking Kabbalah. Sonei nefesh HaRav Yosef Karu Uskeno. The people that Rav Kapach and his grandfather hate in their soul. And he keeps writing and writing. It's a six-page letter that doesn't deserve time on camera. But what can I tell you? History is always written by the victor. Whoever wins, wins. You know, there's a halakha like that. Halakha says that two people come to the Bedin and they both claim that something belongs to them. And there's no proof in either direction. Sometimes, it's an unusual circumstance in halakha, the rabbis say, listen, what do you want from us? You don't have proof. He doesn't have proof. You're both holding on to it. What can we do? Go out to the Bedin, to the back alley. Call the Alim Gevah. Whoever is the more violent one is going to win. And we've allowed ourselves in the Jewish community to let this become not an unusual halakha, but this is normally how it works. The more violent one, the more vocal one, the more angry one, the one who can bully more, can scream more, can be more evil to the other one, who can oppress the other one more, that person always wins. That person always dictates for us what Judaism should look like, or what Judaism truly is. When I was in Israel, someone said, why are you teaching of all the Rambams you could teach from? Why teach from Rav Kapach? Don't you know there are problems? Why don't you go get from that edition, that super edition of the Rambam? I figured to myself, somebody that Rabbi Yavad Yosef could quote from, somebody that Rabbi Yosef or Mordechai Yaw signed in their names, it's like the Rambam is living himself in this generation. That if the Rambam was alive, he would come and kiss Rabbi Yosef Kapach on his head. And say thank you for what you did. I should be afraid. We should be afraid. Because of some bullies. Hey, that's what Shiviti is all about. That's what this Beta Midash is all about.
That's what all the Talmidim, all the students here on this classroom and those all over the world. That's what we believe in. That's what we fight for. We will not allow bullies to extinguish the beauty of our faith. If I may quote from Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan, who said that Choli HaFanatismo, the sickness of fanatismo, fanaticism, will ultimately extinguish the pleasant faith from inside of the midst of our camp. My friends, we here are learning Torah together. We're learning Torah from the greatest tzaddik of all, Moreno HaRambam. We're learning it through, perhaps, who is the greatest student of the Rambam in our generation, the writers of Yosef Kapach. And precisely that's the message we wish to share with the world. We won't allow the sickness of fanaticism to extinguish the beautiful faith that our Chachamim, our teachers, our parents, our tradition gave us as a heritage. Torah tziva lanu Moshe, Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, Moshe, the son of Emun, gave us a Torah. Morashak Hilat Yaakov. It's an inheritance for the whole community of Yaakov. And Bezrat Hashem, I bless HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Baruch Shechianu Vikimanu Vihigianu Lazaman Hazeh. Blessed is the Kadosh Bahu who allowed us to live till this day. We're here in our Kodal, here in our Benimidash. Here we're able to sit together and study the Torah, to drink from the waters of Moreinu Harambam, of our Rabbi the Rambam. And Bezat Hashem, I'm looking forward on a journey. Bezat Hashem of learning together every night here in the Bedak Knesset, here in the Benimidash, and together with all of you, the writings of our Rabbi, our teacher, Rabbi Moshe. Ben Maimon, and we'll have a beautiful day.